But one of the reasons the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in, in one of them is he's defending his apostleship. Uh, somewhere in Corinth, some people have come along and what they've done is they've bragged about themselves so much that they've built themselves up as what Paul will later sarcastically refer to as super apostles. And they've compared it with Paul and, and basically said, you know, Paul doesn't have the qualifications that we do. And he's having to defend himself now and he's doing it very tactfully. And he's helping to steer their attention away from kind of the external. You know, you remember the, uh, the story of when God chose King David, when God anointed him. And, you know, there were the seven uh, older siblings, the sons of Jesse, and, and Samuel goes in and, and he sees the eldest walk by and he thinks, surely, you know, he sees him, he's tall, he's strong. And he sees him and he thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And what does God tell Samuel? Nope, not him. And so the number two comes through and says, not him. And that keeps happening. And finally, Samuel's like, hey, what's going on? And he says, hey, don't look at him as man looks at him. For man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so they get through all of the sons and... You know, that's all of them, basically, except for David. And finally, Samuel looks at him, Jesse, and he's like, um, what am I missing here? Because God has rejected all of them. They're like, well, there's David out there in the field. And he's like, go get him. I told you bring all your sons in. And he even tells him at that moment, he's like, hey, we're not going to sit down until he gets here. Nobody's even going to sit down. And so they wait, and they wait. They go get David, and they bring him in. And, of course, God looks and says, there he is. There is the Lord's anointed. Now, Paul is kind of dealing with that same thing, in which the people of Corinth are looking at the outward appearance. They're looking, and they're listening to the, these people's boasting, and, and their bragging, and their, their qualifications that they've put up for themselves, and they've They've talked down the Apostle Paul and said, no, he doesn't really have what we have. And so the Apostle Paul kind of has to steer their thinking back to, let's look at the heart. That's what God considers important. And so, look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And Paul kind of gives us the list of what we should consider important qualifications in the Christian life. And he starts with the word boast. He says, for our boast, what they're going to brag about, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And so there are three things that Paul really throws out here, and that is sincerity, purity, and wisdom. He grabs on to these three things, and that's what he puts forward, is he says, this is what I will brag about. Whoever these super apostles were, whoever these people that came along that were false teachers, 
They were bragging about all kinds of other things, accomplishments and knowledge or, or whatever. Paul says, here's what I will talk about. I will talk about my sincerity. I will talk about my purity. And I will talk about the, the godly wisdom that I have brought to you. Now, here's the thing about all three of those. They're not tangible. You can't just say, show me your sincerity. Show me your, your purity and, and, and sincerity in what you're doing. Show me your motives. How do we learn those things? You know, show me your wisdom. How do we learn that? We know it's there because we experience it. We spend enough time with somebody and we see their way of life and we see the way they treat people and we see how their faith informs their life and guides them and how they live consistently with their belief system. It's something that can only be known over time. And so that's what Paul does. He doesn't, he, he doesn't bring up a whole list of accomplishments. What he says, I want you to look at me and how I lived while I was with you. I want you to look at what I gave you. He didn't build himself up. He didn't come into town and say, okay, everybody, you've got to listen to me because I'm Paul. I'm the man. And here's the reason. What did he do? He, he did it with a demonstration of the Spirit. He pointed everything back to God. And we even find out that while he was in Corinth, he refused to take money from them. He says, I could have, but I didn't. Because I didn't want to put any hindrance in, in the way. So Paul supported himself and made tents while he was in Corinth ministering to them. And so that's exactly what Paul is kind of pulling to mind for these believers at this moment when he points out, when he says, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved with in, the, in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And then he says, and supremely so toward you. You see, what we choose to hold on to is dear. What we will, in a sense, brag about. You know, we started this talking about, you know, he was, he was talking a little bit of trash. He, he was kind of throwing out there a little bit of what it is that he, uh, you know, that God's going to do. And that's exactly what we're, we're going to talk about here is he says, here's what's important. And it's these intangibles of sincerity, of, of pure motives, of godly wisdom that, that are present in everything that he does. And so let's talk about these three for just a moment. Our boast is this. Since they like people who brag, and he is being sarcastic here, when he says our boast is this, he's saying since you like bragging, and he's going to return to this later in the letter. Okay, most everything he's talking about right now is kind of an introduction for things he's going to really go in depth in later on in this letter. But he says our boast is this, and he's defending himself. But let's think for a moment, worldly boasting versus godly boasting. Does, does godly boasting happen? You better believe it. It does. You remember, Paul, we talked about on Easter. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? He's, he's bringing up a little bit of a boast of like, look, we won. You've got in the Old Testament, you've got, you've got prophets like Elijah that when he, he faced down the 450 prophets of Baal and they're doing their thing trying to draw the, the, the lightning from the sky, the fire from the sky, and, and they're going through their, their pagan rituals trying to summon Baal. What did, did, did Elijah just sit off by himself and let it happen? 
What did he do? He started talking trash. Hey, yell louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's asleep. Wake him up. I mean, there was a little bit of that boasting that went on in that moment. Now, was it prideful boasting? No. And that's the difference. Worldly boasting, okay, sinful, prideful, worldly boasting brings the focus onto me. Where I want the credit, where I want people to recognize me. Godly boasting is where we turn the attention to God. It's where we want people to see that God is the one who gets the credit. Where we want people to see the truth of what is real and what is not. Elijah was boasting. He was. He was boasting of God. And part of that boasting was Baal doesn't exist. You are worshiping a God that does not exist. And he was pointing it out. Was he doing it in a smart aleck way? Actually, he was. Why? Because he's a human being. And so Paul says our boast is this, but it is godly boasting that points to what it is that we should value and who we are. And first he says a clear conscience. The testimony of our conscience. Now, in Paul's thought, a conscience, a clear conscience, is an essential part of the Christian life. Now, it is not the end-all, be-all. Okay, the human conscience can, as Paul says, it can become what he says is a seared conscience where we can believe the wrong things and think we're doing right and actually be doing wrong and our own consciences don't guide us. That can happen. But within the Christian life, if we are walking with God, if we are listening to Him, if we are are in Scripture, our conscience is going to bear witness to whether or not we're living within that truth. Put it another way, a guilty conscience is never going to be a part of a healthy Christian spirituality. That will never be a healthy part of walking with God. It's something that has to be cleared up. It's something that we have to address. If we have a guilty conscience, then that means we know we have done something wrong. And so while our own conscience is not by any means the final arbiter of our righteousness, it is a good indicator of the health of our spiritual walk. If we walk in life knowing we have a guilty conscience, then we're not in a healthy place. That's that's just easy. And that's kind of the base where Paul starts. He says, look, the testimony of our conscience. And and he says, basically, I know I've done what's right. I know that I have not abused you. I know that I have not used you. I know I've not taken advantage of you. I know I've not taught you anything that is outside of good doctrine, of the truth of Jesus Christ. His opponents couldn't say such a thing. And so, this isn't the only place where Paul mentions this. In 1 Timothy 1.5, he says that we should have a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In 1 Timothy 3.9, he says that church leaders must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And what he means about that is we gotta, we, we got to be doing the things we say we believe. Hold the mystery of the faith, understand doctrine, and live that doctrine. That that is what our call is. 
And, and so, like I said, a guilty conscience is never a part of a healthy spiritual life. And this is something that Paul holds up. He says, this is our boast. This is what I'll brag about, is that I live in a place where my conscience does not condemn me. Now think about just how much that in itself says. In a world where anxiety is off the chart, where people are stressed out about everything all the time, how much of that could be us simply not living lives that we know that we should? How much of that anxiety many times is self-inflicted? How much of that trouble that, that we have in life, the stress that we have, how much of that sometimes is self-inflicted simply because we walk around with guilty consciences? Now, I don't say that in condemnation. And, and if you are born again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you are forgiven, but being forgiven does not mean that we get to just ignore our conscience and live however we want. Being forgiven means that the power of sin is now broken and we are free to live for God and have a clear conscience. Having a clear conscience doesn't mean that we never make mistakes. You know what having a guilty conscience means? It actually means we're refusing to let go of something we know we should let go of. It means we're holding on to a belief that we know is wrong or an action that we know is wrong. We are living within it in a way that our own mind is telling us this is incompatible with who you are. You see, when a conscience is guilty, it means that we are knowingly walking in something that is contrary to the truth. Now think about that. Will that cause us stress and problems in life? Absolutely. We can't live that way. That's just, we're not wired to live that way. God doesn't want us to live that way. And physically, it'll even have an impact. And so this is the first thing that Paul throws up there, is that there is a clear conscience, the testimony of his conscience. Then he says, with simplicity and godly sincerity. Now, all we have to do is look casually at the world and see that there are agendas at work. Can we agree with that? Everywhere, everywhere, agendas at work. Now, what are agendas when I say that? It's, it's a secondary goal that people have that they may be doing one thing, but it's for the purpose of accomplishing this. Now, not all agendas are bad, but it always seems to, to muck things up, doesn't it? It always seems to cloud the issue because you wonder, what is a person's real motive here? You know, do they mean this or do they have an agenda? Are they doing this? For the right reason or is there some other reason that this is happening? And we, we question it. And the opponents that Paul had, the people who were coming into Corinth, they had a secondary agenda. They were claiming apostleship from God while building a following for themselves. Guess what? That's an agenda. That is not, that is not godly sincerity and that is not simplicity that is abusing people and using people for their own personal gain. And they were using the name of God and the things of God for their own personal gain. And guess what? God doesn't like that. And so that's what Paul is able in that moment then to say that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. 
There was no secondary agenda with Paul and his companions. What they saw was what they got. It was about them knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that he did pointed back to that. He didn't take money from them. He didn't do the, you know, he didn't put a burden on them. He didn't require things of them that that he could have, but he chose not to because he wanted the focus to be solely on Jesus Christ. And and in fact, I, I want you to think of it this way. There was no hidden agenda. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, listen as Paul describes how he came to them. They say, and I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now what he's telling us there is that he didn't rely on the rhetoric and the tools of the culture and the day to convince people to follow God. He didn't try to argue them into the kingdom. You ever tried to do that? You know, we've all made that mistake at some point, thinking we could just win an argument and they'd believe God. You know, somebody's wrong on Facebook. What are you doing? I'm going to win. You know, they're wrong. And Paul said, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't bring the, the arguments and I didn't bring the, the, the underhanded sales tactics, if you will. And I didn't bring worldly wisdom and gimmicks to try to win you over. And in fact, what does he talk about then? He says, I was, I was afraid. I was nervous. I, I, I didn't, I, I was weak when I was with you. Like, there was nothing about Paul himself that he would hold up and be like, look, I was the man. He says, it's just the opposite. I was weak. I was trembling. All of that was true of me when I was there. But you saw the Spirit of God and you heard the gospel. And his statement when he says, I chose to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. My guess is he chose to stay out of a whole lot of arguments and discussions that were secondary to his cause. Well, what do you think of this issue? I Look, I'm just here to talk about Jesus. <laughs> and he chose to stay out of it because he didn't want to cloud the issue at all. Now think about it. That is a singularity of focus. I mean, that is like laser-like focus where he said, when I was with you, that's all you heard about was Jesus and him crucified. I didn't get involved in anything else. I didn't have a secondary agenda. It was simple. This is the gospel. This is why you need God, and you can follow him. And that's what his life and his message reflected. You see, the grace of God influences Paul the same as it does in all of God's work in the world. God is reflected in its simplicity and its purity. Now, when I say purity, I'm not, you know, there's kind of like a whole other realm of, of purity movement. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking purity of motive purity of reason that it's happening you know paul didn't do god and you ever thought it you know god and hey you need to believe in god and you need to do this that's one of the tactics of satan is to get us to believe god and no it's it's god it's it's the gospel of jesus christ it's not jesus and something else it's jesus alone 
And that's what Paul is saying. I didn't, I didn't have an and there. It was only Jesus. Not Jesus and you need to support my ministry. Not Jesus and you need to be involved politically in this way. Not Jesus and you need to whatever. Jesus and the law. He didn't do any of that. He said it's just Jesus. And he holds this up as a defense of his apostleship. What does that tell us? That tells us Paul is saying what really matters in the Christian life comes down to the mission that we genuinely pursue will reveal what we believe. And for Paul, he believed people needed Jesus, so that's what he did. He chose to tell them about Jesus. He chose not to get involved in a lot of other things because he resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified so that it wouldn't take away from his message. Think of that. that. That means he said no to a lot of things in life that he could have said yes to. Like it, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been a sin, it wouldn't have been wrong, but he chose this is what's most important. And he wants the Corinthians to hear that. He wants them to realize that, that he didn't bring all this other stuff that the other people had. He was clear, he was up front. He, he knows that he was doing what God wanted him to do. His conscience was clear and his mission was evident from beginning till now. It didn't change. And then he says, we behaved with godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely stowed towards you. Godly wisdom means that we don't think, problem solve, view the world, act. We don't process information in the same way the world does. Godly wisdom leads us to be completely different. Now, here's the thing. We can't develop godly wisdom by any means of our own. You know why? Because God told us in Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We're not going to figure God out. We're not going to figure out his ways. We're not going to be like, hey, I got this thing figured out. I now think like God. Because his ways are so much higher than ours that godly wisdom is only available through the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is a gift that God gives us. Godly wisdom is not a, a skill to be learned. It is something to submit to and follow. And we know we have godly wisdom because it's something that can't be faked. We can't force it. We can ask for it. And James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives freely without finding fault. In James 1, and then James 3, he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, there's that purity again, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. While we can't force godly wisdom into our lives, we can't develop it you know, through, through worldly means, when God grants it to us and we walk within it, we do have a way to recognize it. And what is it? He says it's first of all pure. Again, there's no secondary agenda with godly wisdom. It's about the gospel. It's about the kingdom. It's about righteousness and holiness and glorifying God. It will always be about that and that will never change. So you know it's from God when it keeps pointing us back to God. Second, it's peaceable, gentle, and open to reason, 
full of mercy and good fruits. Think of that. It is peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. Our world needs, needs godly wisdom from the church today. And we are the only ones that can give it. Now, and I, I don't say that arrogantly. I'm not saying, hey, we, we are the... I'm saying our world needs it right now because it's so lacking. This idea right here that, that, that godly is it's peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. When I look at the world out there right now, I see this irrationality, irrational hatred and anger all over the place. That's not open to reason. It is not gentle. In that gentleness that we all need, that, that reasonableness of being able to come. I mean, God even says it in Isaiah. Remember, what does He say? He says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. God invites us to have a discussion with Him. Now, it's not to change His mind. He's not going to change His mind. But he says, we'll still have the discussion. I will listen. I'm open to reason. And as we discuss and we have that conversation with God, what happens? Though your sins be like scarlet, they'll be, we're going to see the truth. And we're going to be changed. Our world is not open to reason right now. It's just not. I, I don't see it anywhere. And unfortunately, I see it even filtering into the church. Where this aggressive, irrational, just kind of knee-jerk reaction all the time. And he says godly wisdom isn't about that. What does he say? It says it's gentle, it's peaceable, it's open to reason. The world needs the church to be the voice of reason again in this world. And we can only do that through the Holy Spirit. We don't have the strength in ourselves. When we rely on ourselves, guess what? We become close to reason. We need to win the argument. When we are walking with God and the Holy Spirit is, is working within us, we can have the discussion because we trust in the power of God to change a person, not my argument. We know, just like God, if they have the truth, the truth will set them free. But the church, the body of Christ, we are the ones who have to be that godly wisdom in this world. Nobody else can do it. It takes us to be the voice of reason now. And the reason we can do all of this is that our faith is simple. The, the simple faith. And when I say simple, I don't mean simplistic. Okay, this is one that this is important to understand. The faith of God is simple. Did you know God himself, theologians throughout the centuries have agreed God is simple in his nature. And what I mean by that, again, not simplistic, not, you know, lacking intelligence and, and, and you know, just idiotic in a sense. That's not what I mean. When I say simple, I mean that he is irreducible in his being. When asked what his name was at the burning bush, what did he say? I am. 
Is there a simpler answer than that? I am. I am that I am. I, there, there is nothing I can say beyond I am the very existence of everything and all life. And I, I, I am. He's simple in the fact that you can't break him down into anything lower. You know, put the pieces together and you get God. There are no pieces. God is whole within himself. He is simple. His existence is just one of existence. That's it. You know, it used to be believed that a human cell was kind of the basic building block of all biology, right? That the, the cell was the base. You know, they now understand that the cell is kind of a universe of itself. There are so many functioning parts within a cell that they're like, this is no longer a basic unit. We can't talk about a cell as a basic unit anymore because there are so many moving parts in it that we, we just can't do that. We no longer can classify it like that. So now they're, you know, you got the cell and you got all this stuff underneath it. See, that's not simple. A cell is not simple in that regard anymore. Just like they used to think an atom. Hey, there are three parts to it, right? Proton, neutron, electron. That's it. That's, we can't break it down any further. This is the simple basic of matter. Guess what? Not anymore. Now they know that there are quarks and muons and gluons. Physicists just continue to find more and more and more. And they're like, okay, it's not the basic thing. You see, with God, you cannot reduce him down to anything less than what he is. He is simple. And that's what Paul is relying on right here in verse 13 when he says, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. He already told him in his first letter, what? I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified while I was with you. And now what I'm writing to you, I'm not changing anything. I'm not making it more complex. I'm not adding something to it that I didn't before. I just want you to understand this. That's it. Now, how much easier does that make things for us when we understand, look, God wants us to understand this. This, is, this doesn't have to be complex in the sense that you have to have a certain level of intellect to understand God. We like to make, humans, we like to make it that way. We want to make it complex. In fact, we want to do theological systems that we've got to have, you know, charts lining the stage. You ever been to one of those conferences? You know, by the end of it, you're like, I have no idea what you're even talking about anymore. And you're looking at it going, what are you, who thinks this up? You know what, that's not what God is. You should not need to have a Ph.D. in theology and linguistics and ancient civilizations to understand the things of God. And if, if what you're following kind of requires that, then you're following the teachings of man somewhere, okay? I'm not saying you're entirely wrong. I'm just saying you're following the teachings of man somewhere because God is simple. There's a reason that Jesus said you must become like this little child if you want to follow me. Childlike faith. It doesn't have to be complex to be true. In fact, what I've found is the more complex it is, the more they're generally trying to cloud the truth. And I'll give you an example. The Ten Commandments, right? Pretty simple, right? I mean, ten lines, God gave it to us, hey, here you go. Go up and look up the tax code for the U.S. government. 
Not simple, right? I mean, we're talking reams and reams and reams of laws. Ten commandments, ten sentences. That's enough. And entire stuff to fill a library that still nobody really understands. Why? Because genuinely trying to cloud the issue. Trying to confuse people. And Satan knows if he can make it more and more complex, then he can confuse you and keep you from coming to a saving knowledge of the truth. Keep you from being effective in your Christian walk. And so Paul even reminds him. He says, look, this is about the simplicity of this. Don't let these people come in who are making it more complex than it needs to be, who are putting Jesus and something else, weighing you down with rules. Don't let that happen. He says what? He says, we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. He, he says, I'm, I am keeping this exactly where it needs to be the whole time. Now, I hope that that frees some of you. Because some people get so caught up in trying to find the truth in Scripture that they turn the Scripture into a code to be deciphered that is so complex that, that it, you, you end up with the, like this second language trying to understand it. And that's not what God wants. Now, I'm not saying that it's simplistic and that you know, everything is just surface meaning and it, it, it's there. No, there, there is depth to it that takes time to understand. And yes, we do, as the psalmist said, have to meditate upon the Word of God to get its truth. But listen, that doesn't mean that it has to be complex. Do not mistake or confuse depth for complexity. It can be incredibly complex and incredibly shallow. And it can be incredibly simple and eternally deep. And, and I mean that. Think, think of it. Eternally deep. He who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God. Simple yet deep. It thrusts us into the heart and the mind and the being of God when we understand the depth of that. But guess what? Going deep doesn't mean that we change the simple surface meaning of it. That Jesus paid the price for our sins. He died on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that his righteousness could come to us. The more you think about it, the deeper it goes, but it doesn't change the meaning. It doesn't become complex where now suddenly you've got to understand all these other things to make it work. And this is one of the great things. This is one of the true treasures of the faith. Okay, This whole sermon series is called The Treasures of the Faith. And I want you to grab hold of this. The fact that God is simple and His ways are simple is a true treasure of the faith because that means that He is unchanging. He is who He is. I am that I am. God doesn't change. And that is a bedrock truth that we can all grab onto. This should bring us comfort and strength and give us direction no matter what. Because if God is unchanging, then the faith is also unchanging. 
we don't need to redefine Christianity for a modern culture. We just need to express it to them. See, in Hebrews 13, 8 and 9, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Diverse and strange. You know what that's another code for? That, not code, but another thing. Complex and confusing. If it draws you away and it confuses you, to a level, now I'm not saying challenging you. Sometimes we can be convicted and challenged by something and think, okay, I'm going to have to think about that. But if, if you continue to dig in it and it just seems that the labyrinth gets more and more complex and it, and it gets more and more confusing, back out of that and go back to the simplicity. Because God doesn't want it to be confusing. He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by what's simple. And, and I have seen people over and over go into Scripture and they're like, I, I'm going to find the answer. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. I'm going to define it. And I'm going to change. I just give me. And they, they dig and they dig and they dig. And you know what? They miss the simplicity of God loves you. Oh, but we got to define love, and we got to define you. And, and in the, the second century Akkadian language, you really could mean that. No, no, stop. God loves you. Don't make it more complex than it has to be. Now, is that a deep statement? You better believe it. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son. Hey, wait a minute. That love is now being put into action. You mean God would take action on my behalf? Guess what? Getting deeper. Getting deeper. But it doesn't have to be complex. And these simple points of God are genuinely fixed points. Okay, I want you to think of it like that. They are fixed points points that we can return to over and over and over in our Christian walk as we start to get confused, as we face challenges. These fixed points become markers that will never change. They will never change. The moment you are saved, you are saved by grace through faith. Amen? The moment you die and go to heaven... You were saved by what? By grace through faith. When you've been in heaven for 10,000 years, as we sing in the song, you were saved by what? By grace through faith. It never changes. It will never change. And so there are fixed points in Christianity, as we say, the faith does not change, that we can just keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it. And we're able to go deep, but it doesn't change the faith. And so one of the things our enemy wants to do is to remove fixed points from our lives so that we wander aimlessly, so that we become confused, so that we start to believe things that aren't true. And nothing is beneath him as far as removing fixed points. Okay? Nothing. He will lie about everything. And we have to be ready for that. 
I mean, what are some of the common tactics that he does to try to remove fixed points from our lives? He will attack Scripture, and he has over and over. This book is the most ridiculed, criticized, and and scrutinized book in the history of the world. They have torn it up, turned it inside out, questioned everything about it. And guess what? Still here. You know why? Because it's not going anywhere. It's been outlawed, it's been lied about, and yet it's still here. But God wants people to doubt it. And so you hear things like, oh, well, I, you know, it, it can't really be trusted. The Bible really can't be trusted because it's, it's been altered by man. You know, you know at the, the Council of Chalcedon, there were books that they rejected and took out of the Bible because they were controlling things. How many have heard that argument or read it online? Yeah, yeah. Guess what? It's not true. That shows a, a horrible understanding of history, for one, and an agenda, again, that is just simply not true. You know, the Scripture can be trusted in every way as reliable. This is the single most detailed and accurate document from the ancient world that we have in existence. Now, I'm going to give you an example. How many in here have heard of the Greek uh, poet, writer, Homer? He wrote the Odyssey, right? The Odyssey. In order for scholarship today to believe that an ancient document is legitimate, that we have what was written. Anybody in here know how many copies of that ancient document they need in agreement with each other? Five or six. Five or six ancient copies. We're not even talking about originals, okay? It can be several years old and even like a thousand years later, but if they have five or six ancient manuscripts that agree, archaeology says yes, we, we have assurance that we have this as it was intended by the author. Five or six copies, okay? You know how many ancient copies of the New Testament we have that agree? We're not even talking about the ones that disagree, that agree. You know how many copies we have that agree? Over 5,000. They need five or six to say, yes, we, we have confidence in this. We have over 5,000 of the New Testament. Guess what? It's been preserved. We can believe it. But you see, Satan doesn't want us to know that. He wants to remove fixed points so that we question the reality of God. And when I say nothing is beneath him, I mean nothing is beneath him. God created them male and female. Oh, did he really? Let's call that into question. Oh, Jesus, Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. Oh, was he really? Let's just call that into question. Now, the facts never back it up. But our enemy is not interested in the facts. Our enemy is interested in lying and confusing and stealing and destroying. He wants confusion. And so when I say the faith is simple, that's what I mean. Do not allow things to intimidate you or confuse you away from the truth. Whatever, however deep a teaching is, if it contradicts a simple truth, it's not true. Okay? It's not true. And that is how we can 
we can learn to know truth from error because we have the easy things right here on top. God just lays it out there. I am God. I am one. There, there is none beside me. It's pretty simple, right? No other God but me. They don't even exist. Monotheism. Now, we don't really question that in our culture as much today, but that used to be a big deal. In Paul's day, that was a huge deal. Like that, that made no sense. People had the one God. What are you talking about, one God? I got, I got 27 of them in my house right now. And I pray to different ones at different times. What do you mean there's one? Well, it's simple. It's right there, one. So anything that starts to tell you that there's more than one, we, we immediately get to say, nope, that's not right. I won't be swayed by it. I will not be distracted by it. I'm not going to be confused by it because I know this is true. And so we take the, those simple things and allow them in life to spur us forward, to correct us, to guide us. To guide us to what? To look forward to what? Well, what we're going to call the fellowship of the faith. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest. The, when I was studying for this sermon, this one jumped out at me. You ever do that? You know, you know you've read a scripture 8,000 times, and then like one of those moments it just hits you, and something just jumps out at you, and you're like, wow, never really noticed that before. Not like that. This is one of those times. He talks about, at the end of this, that he says they're going to do all of this, and they're going to... to understand, you know, be comforted and everything we've talked about so far. And he says that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Does that seem a little strange to anybody? That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you know what that means? That's, that's another way of saying judgment day. When Jesus returns and everything's laid bare, what does Paul expect to happen? Well, I'm going to put it this way. Within the church, Judgment Day is going to involve a lot of finger pointing. But not like you think. Not in worldly sense of finger pointing, but in praising and boasting. On Judgment Day, we're going to be pointing each other out saying, hey, God, you got to see this person because they taught me. They walked with me. This person over here did a whole lot in their life and I want to I brag about them. It never hit me before that on Judgment Day, it's not going to just be about me and God. It's going to be about me and everybody that influenced me in life for Him. And I'm going to be like, God, these people rock. These people are awesome. Now think about that. I hope that really changes your view of Judgment Day because that's going to be an awesome moment. Paul says, I'm convinced that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us. And we will boast of you. Paul's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be like, hey, those Corinthians, man, God, they followed you. They overcame. They were in a dark, dark pagan culture where there were, there were temple sacrifices and temple prostitutes. And they, they were in the Roman Empire. They're being persecuted. And there was all kinds of stuff going on. And they stood tall. And even when they messed up, I wrote them a letter and I told them to stop it. And they did. They knocked it off, and, and, and they changed their behavior. God, these people were awesome. Paul says, I expect to do that. Now, how many of you have ever thought about that in your life? 
You see, this is what Paul thinks about the fellowship of the faith. This is, what, this is why this is important. You, have you noticed already, we're just in chapter 1, how many times Paul keeps coming back to our interactions with each other? That whatever comfort we receive with God, we should, what? Comfort others. It always involves not just me and God, but me, God, and my neighbor. Everything. And so that even judgment's going to involve that. Me, God and my neighbor over and over and over. And so Paul challenges people to increase their fellowship, their fellowship of the faith over and over. In Philemon, verse 3, he says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith, that, that is literally when he says the sharing of your faith, that's the word koinonia in the Greek, the fellowship of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of, of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Think of that. I pray that the sharing of your faith, now we're not talking about evangelism right now, okay? We're talking about the body of Christ being the body of Christ, us sharing lives together, us loving each other, us praying for, encouraging each other, taking it to a whole new level of doing that. He says, I pray that it may become effective for what? For the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now that word, that, that full knowledge right there is one of my favorite words in the Greek. I, I mean favorite is the word epinosis, which means experiential knowledge. Okay, epinosis and gnosis. Gnosis is head knowledge. Epinosis, I, I've used this before, but gnosis is, is reading the book and learning the facts. Epinosis is doing it and learning it yourself, okay? It's learning to ride a bike. That is epinosis. You can't learn it other than by doing it. That's what he uses right here when he says full knowledge. He says, I want you to experience and know every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And how do we get there? Through the fellowship of our faith. There are things that can only be learned and experienced. Good things of Christ. Now, who, who in here wants every good thing you can get from Christ? Anybody? Wow, like there weren't very many hands. Other people are like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm pretty sure at this point I've experienced enough. I'll save it for heaven. Oh, Paul says, I want you to get it all. And he says, the only way you can get that is that the sharing, the fellowship of your faith becomes effective. That it becomes an effective part of who you are in your life. That when you think of the faith, you don't just think of your relationship with God. You think of your relationship with God and your relationship with your neighbor. And their relationship with God. And as we grow into that, he says, you'll experience it. There are more experience, And so we literally sell ourselves short by not engaging with the body of Christ. Men, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Men, sometimes, men, we want to come to church and sit and be quiet, right? Like, hey, I'm just going to be here. Leave me alone. I'm here. That's enough. And I get it. I, I do. But listen, we're selling ourselves short by not engaging. You want to be the man God called you to be in life? Engage in the church and watch. You'll be challenged at every level. 
and you will grow and become something special that God will use in his kingdom. But we cannot experience it on our own. And we want all of us, we want to be independent. We want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to lean on other people. When Paul says, my prayer is that you learn how to do that because that's where the real gold is in faith. That's where the good stuff is. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge, the experiential knowledge of every, not some good things, every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. However far you want to experience Christ is going to be determined by how you experience His body. It's that simple. There's no way around that. And that is not a bad thing. That's why over and over, He just tells us what? He says, love one another. Bear with one another. If any of you have something against, forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Look, God knows the mess He's calling us into. Don't think for a moment that He's he's like, wow, that didn't work out like I thought it would. He knows we're a mess. He says it's in the middle of that mess. When you guys are working together, that's where I'm going to show up. When you're caring for each other, when you're praying together, when you're evangelizing together, when you're serving together, when you're studying the Word together, that is where good things are going to happen. And for Paul, he expects us to think this way. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. That was his expectation. And so, will others in the body of Christ, what will their boast be of you? What will their boast be of you? Are you involved enough that you can think, you know what, I hope that somebody would be able to boast in in the faith that I showed to them, and the love that I showed to them. Not in a prideful sense, not, not worldly boasting, godly boasting. God's going to get the credit. But will people boast of you on Judgment Day? Well, if you're still here today, if you are, you're here, then you have time to make sure that that happens. To engage with the body of Christ at new levels of prayer and service and work. Let's pray.